Welcome back to the Hamster Book Club. My name is Joe Ford and I am delighted today to be shaking up the formula because you don't know this, but we normally have four people on this thing. But you're so good. I've, I just wanted you to talk to. It's Mr. Michael Mills. Hello. Hello. Absolutely no pressure. Uh, should I say hello four times? There could be four of me. I could do that. Okay. If, that if the format comes up. Hello. hello. Four different languages, please. Okay. Uh, hello. Uh, North Star. Uh <laughs> Yeah, a bit Welsh for you. Uh, bienvenue. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Uh, Galag Throng Earthlet. What the hell was that? It's 2018. You call yourself a geek. Oh, sorry. Actually, I've just been doing the Judge Dread audios, you know, on my Big Finish podcast. Have you heard yeah, of those? Uh, the, uh, yeah, with... Uh, with uh, Toby, Toby, Toby Longworth. Toby Longworth, the man of a million voices. Yes, he's he's great, isn't he? He's a, I think he could turn his voice to... We're already talking about audios, look. <laughs> <laughs> I am the law. Oh, he's great. I'm not sure what Claire Buckfield from 2.4 Children is doing in there, but <laughs> we can skip that. The delights of early Big Finish. <laughs> oh, I love it. Michael, hello. Welcome to Hammerstar. I'm so happy to have you here. I heard you on Dylan Reese's Too Hot for TV. And as I said to you off mic, I was <laughs> 10 minutes into your rags and combat rock episode and I was looking up your social media profile to get you on this. You were that good. Um, have you done podcasting elsewhere apart from Too Hot for TV? Not not, not really. Uh, not unless anyone's uh, caught me talking about uh, economic research on the Imperial College podcast. No, apart from that, um, not much at all. So thank what you for having me. Waste. What a waste. I'm hoping this opens the door then. Um, I'd like to ask you what your journey with Doctor Who books is, or whether that's sort of a big part of your Doctor Who experience. Oh, yeah. It's a huge part of my Doctor Who experience because I was born uh, in the late 80s. So the f- put it into context for you, the first Doctor Who I ever saw was the TV movie in 1996, uh, which and I should have been the perfect age for it. Uh, but unfortunately, for all its many great things, the TV movie is not made for eight year old children, unlike most Doctor Who. Uh, so I saw that. But then. I was aware of Doctor Who or something on UK Gold and documentaries for a few years. But then for some reason, one half term, I'd seen a trailer for for BBC BBC websites. Why not find out more about classic programmes, all that stuff? So I looked on it and they really got into it through that, playing the top top Trump's game that you could print Mm. out. And, oh, no, it's a giant maggot. I'm never going to be anything with that. Um, (laughs) But the only ongoing Doctor Who at that point was was the books. So that that was the ongoing Doctor Who for me. So I got into it. My first Doctor Who book was Storm Harvest uh, Ooh, by Robert Perry. Choice. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I feel I, I, I feel like I am validated all these years later because when I I, I got it because uh, W. H. Smith's in Shrewsbury had a surprising amount of Doctor Who books on the shelf for a program that hadn't been on air for 13 years at this point and uh but that was the one that didn't look like scary and grown up and a bit proper sci-fi it had a monster that hadn't seen and it had Sylvester McCoy and he seemed excitingly modern at the time um so I read it and I I loved it It it's great you know widescreen Doctor Who and you know looking back at the time I think because they were you know the Virgin New Adventures had finished and obviously they'd taken those characters the Seventh Doctor and Ace and done so much that a lot of people I think just didn't like that kind of return to basic formula of it. Um, but I didn't know about any of that, and I was twelve or whatever or thirteen, so I was like yay. Um, 
but I know I thought it was great. But you go online as you did then on the message boards and start talking, and I was going, "Oh, it's a load of trash. Oh, it's rubbish." But all these years later, you look back at them; they're they're brilliant. They're like they're like new series adventures before the new series adventures were written. Um, so yeah, that was my first Doctor Who book, and then for a few uh, best part of a year afterwards, just played it safe for the past Doctor adventures, and then relevantly to what we're going to be discussing finally got into the eighth doctor adventures with mad dogs and englishmen by paul miles because with that cover (laughs) is that what tempted you to it that cover (laughs) well i think weirdly i think it was that it said it was also that it was the 100th doctor who book from and of all the books they could have chosen to emblazon that I I I love it. I mean, how much <laughs> worse? Oh, it's a, it's a great book. I mean, you know, Paul Mars is a, not not to besmirch other Doctor Who writers, but you know, he's a proper writer. You know what I mean? He uh, and it, it's 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 magical realism. It's it's high camp. It's Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings. You know what? And Iris Wild Time, as played by uh, Shirley Bassey, I think in that one, isn't it? I've read it recently for the yeah. book club. We haven't recorded it yet. And I was just like, Ray Harryhausen, George Lucas, J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, he's literally <laughs> ripping everybody in this book. <laughs> I think he's a genius because it's very clever. It's brilliantly mm. structured, but it's a smooth read. It's such an easy read and it's so yeah. funny. He makes it look easy and it's not. It's not easy to write a book that smart. All, all that full of stuff because you think about how many, not just Doctor Who books, but you read any tie-in novels and how many of them is just... Plod, 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 yeah. plod, plod, plod. And every single that I've just had a memory, and not to preempt your, your later episode, but isn't there a character in that called George Fuckass? Yeah, there is. There is. <laughs> I think it's Fuchard. Fuchard, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I do apologize, of course. George Fuckers, yeah. <laughs> It's my it's my twenty year old memory failing me. It's the fact that they had Adventuress of Henrietta Street immediately before this, which yeah. is probably the more prestige novel, you know, as written <laughs> as a historical document by possibly Bernie Summerfield, River Song, whoever you want it to be, written by Lawrence Miles. Oh, they could have stuck the hundred at the top of that, but no, the pink poodle smoking a cigarillo. That's the way we're going. Come on, the gold foil looked fantastic. <laughs> and fans were in uproar, weren't they? Do you remember when that book won the poll that year? Oh, God. There and was people... a letter writing campaign. How dare you let this win the poll? And it and people, like, it's okay, maybe you don't like garish stuff. You know, maybe it wasn't your favorite cover. Some of the others are classier, obviously, but some people get properly, properly angry. No, this isn't. Doctor Who is a serious program. Like if you've not watched much Doctor Who, if you think I'm not that, sure we're you? immune today, you know, either we haven't got <laughs> we haven't improved since then. No, this is very true. Um, I although having said that, you know, Star Wars people are worse. Uh, oh, yeah. So if you're firmly interested in Star Wars, what are they like then? Because I've never dipped my toes in Star Wars. I'm not entrenched in the fandom there. Not that I necessarily consider myself to be entrenched in the fandom here, but I'm not appearing on Star Wars podcasts. Um, they're, oh, they're scary. Like, because you have to remember, it's a predominantly American uh, fandom as well. So, you know, it's a uh, it's a gun owning country. So you take it all a, a bit more, <laughs> <laughs> a bit more gently. So these conversations can end in a very dramatic way. Then, I think there's a reason they pioneered remote recording for podcasts. But- <laughs> Put it this way: you have you have people in you have people in Star Wars who uh, who argue that the bit in the films that doesn't make sense is when one of the ships run, rams another ship. 
Right. Oh, it sounds yeah. a bit like a Star Wars fan, a Star Trek fandom as well. Sorry. You know, I watched that film. Um, what was the second film in the third trilogy? The Last Jedi. And that came out, and I was seeing all of these YouTube videos popping up of people going, This is the worst bit of tribe ever, the most toxic Star Wars film, you know, destroying the fandom. I watched the film, I thought that was bloody incredible. What are they talking about? Oh, it's because people, there are. There are, there are a lot of people and there are lots of fans who feel that the most important thing that their uh, that their program, their film can do for them is to validate all of their insecurities and make them feel very important and very protected by it. So the moment anything begins to look a bit reflective or frankly, not just like a cartoon that's been filmed with real actors, they get a bit scared about it all. Terrifying, isn't it? Imagine well, if Doctor Who fans were like that imagine <laughs> so circling back around to the books um did you then go and explore the virgin output as well or have you literally just explored the bbc books no gone back and explored the versions in very kind of haphazard form you know what turns up in in secondhand bookshops and stuff like that but again weirdly just to top it off my first virgin new adventure was sky pirates by dave stone your first my first virgin new adventure oh, was sky pirates <laughs> yeah <laughs> Which is, uh, which sets a probably inaccurate expectation of what the Virgin New Adventures are going to be like. Mm. But again, it's a heck of a lot of fun of a book. Well, um, I, I wrote a review for that one for my blog, and I that was where I coined the term. It's too too. That book is too too. It's too funny. It's too wacky. It's too serious. It's too graphic. It's too everything. You know, like just <laughs> rein it in a bit, Dave. And he does actually. He does get there, I think, eventually. But. You know, got... he, he's trying hard on his first, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. The bit that stays with me is when they crash a spaceship onto a planet that look, that looks like a snowman, and that's not even <laughs> the, that's not even the peak of where it gets as a book. If there's never a sentence more uh, I've heard of a you know a new writer, a, a fresh writer to Doctor Who universe, I and mean, it's a bit of a scary place to be, isn't it? Uh, with mm. Virgin writers, especially in the Virgin range. All right, if I was to ask you, what was your favorite and your least favorite of virgin's output oh god that's a good question favorite of virgin's output not um, best not best no, favorite favorite well fittingly for today's discussion i think it's the dying days uh mm. by lance parkin the last one well the last one chronologically not the last one published that must have been weird they skipped so violus in and then they went back and published it afterwards and it's the one where ros dies Spoiler wasn't there a hard drive crash or something along those lines i'm sure i remember ben aronovich admitting years later in doctor who magazine that that was just a cover story that he just hadn't written it he he got like absolutely epic writer's block to the point of like just you know actually being quite a bad place about it because he'd done the also people which oh. It's another classic. Shit's uh, Oh, but yeah, exactly. He's like, well, how on earth do I follow that up? And he just he just hit an absolute brick wall. And eventually, in order to get the thing written, Kate Orman came in and took it over and and finished it all. Um but but yeah, the, the dying days, which is which is more like new series Doctor Who than anything mm-hmm. else that was produced in the wilderness years, bar none. Uh it's a fantastic book. It's you sort of sort of wish they've done more of that in the virgin new adventures it feels like a little bit of a you know at the very at the dying days of the range of them going oh actually do you know what we never i know everyone's complaining about the tv movie and the fact that it didn't have monsters and alien invasions and the doctor but we never really did that did we Nah, no ah. We um, too busy torturing everybody for 300 pages 
<laughs> Did you ever yeah. do Falls to Shadow and Parasite back to back? Oh, that oh, is no. interminable. I don't, don't, don't bother. No, uh, worst one. Oh, that's a tougher question. I think I. What are the ones I don't remember? Um, I, I remember being quite bored by St Anthony's Fire. And that's the only the only thing I remember about it is being quite bored. Mark Gatiss's second one. Thank you. I couldn't even remember who wrote that one. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you. Uh, I can I can remember very very little about it other than just that that was some Doctor Who. There we go. Then, do you know when I watched the Christmas Invasion, I got huge Dying Days vibes from that with the yeah. spaceship coming over London and just that sort of very contemporary alien invasion story. And do you remember the bit where Benny grabs hold of Paul McGann and, oh, sorry, the Doctor and snogs him on the bed? I think they do a bit more than snog. Oh, do they? Oh, I've forgotten that. <laughs> well, it's in, it's implied, but I think I think it uh, I think it ends with her pushing him down onto the bed. Okay, which is strange because when we're in a position where the Eighth Doctor could possibly have a romance when mm. he's got no memories at all. In fact, he's rather chaste during this hundred years of his life that we're going to talk about today. He is. Bless him. I feel a bit sorry, really. I mean, there must have been a moment, wasn't there? I hope so. Well, he had, did you read Casualties from War, the second one? No. So that, that had a almost romance with a character called Mary Minute, uh, which... Like it was unrequited, but they okay. had a they had a moment on the stairs where we're all sort of going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously there's uh, Debbie Castle stroke Deborah Gordon in yep. this. Uh, yeah, which would... well, I'll tell you what, shall we? Shall we move on to Father Time then? Let's actually start talking about it. <laughs> this is typ- typical of this podcast. We never talk it. about the bloody thing. But the book is so good. <gasps> of course, we're going to have to give it a lot of attention. When did you first come to this one, then? came to this one uh, probably about a year or so after it came out. So I, I just got into it with Mad Dogs and Englishmen and was then sort of bum, 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 you know, carrying on with them from there and dipping back into the more recent ones and saw this on a shelf uh in smiths and knew that people had said it was good um so picked it up and i think i read it in about three days uh which was very quick for me at the time um it's it's a it's a it's a phenomenal book um it is i mean how much you want to say about it in terms of setting it up for people uh go go on oh, okay, sorry. sorry um uh yeah so uh it's a, it's a phenomenal book. It's it is it is so broad. It is so deep. It is uh, for the small screen, as they used to say in the Virgin New Adventures. We've day. stopped saying that now, haven't we? We've we stopped saying that now. We just say it features the Eighth Doctor as played by Paul McGann, because um, that was sent to the kids. It's it is it's a proper grown up book as well as being an excellent Doctor Who book. Um, for those who haven't read it brief overview of the plot uh falls in the middle of the uh stuck on earth range the doctor's lost his memory because he's blown up gallifrey imagine doing that uh and he's left on earth with the tardis regrowing building itself and he can't remember who he is and he has to live through the 20th century on earth while the tardis repairs itself and he's all he has is a note in his pocket saying meet me in st louis on a certain date in 2001 it's a it's- 
brilliant idea, isn't it? I think as as a reboot for the range, which had got too entangled in its own arcs mm. and people were sort of losing interest with, yeah. to take away everything that is Doctor Who, the TARDIS, the time travel, the anywhere in time and space, the Doctor's memories, the companion, dropping him on Earth and having a series of six books as he slowly regains all those things. Mm. But the burning is almost like the perfect jumping on point because there we're introduced to the Doctor for the first time. It's effectively like an unearthly child. Mm. Um, and this is, what is this, the fifth of six, isn't it, Father Time? Yes, it's... There's, o- there's only one more after this. Yeah, it's a shame it ended with that one, you know, because it's almost perfect until that point. <laughs> um, well, look, should we take this section by section? Because this book is split into three sections, the early 80s, the mid 80s, and the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So the first section then, I want you to... Okay, as we go through each section, I want you to pull out a character yeah. that really impressed you yeah. in each section. So, so looking at that first section, can I begin talking about a third section with, with a short reading from oh, please a short reading from Doctor Who Father Time by Lance Parkin, and this is uh, this is from the start of chapter one, and it goes, "There comes a time when the fall of snow is no longer the start of a marvelous adventure. There comes a time when it means scraping your windscreen and hoping your car starts. It means aching joints and throbbing sinuses and cold hands and feet." It means taking longer to get to work and spending all day sitting at an office where the heating isn't on. Grey slush and cracked pipes, cancelled trains and influenza. That's what snow means. You'll wake up feeling like that one day, and it will mean you're grown up. I hope that day doesn't come soon. Oh, that's good, isn't it? That's that good writing. Reads, it reads so much differently as an adult now. As when I read it as a when I as a child, I was like, "I'll never be that person." No. Reading it as an adult, I'm like, "Oh dear, what happened?" <laughs> <laughs> I've become Debbie Castle. <laughs> it's heartbreaking, isn't it? So we meet. So we open in the early eight, the early eighties in the Derbyshire Hills, where the Doctor's living a recluse. You sort of get the impression he's maybe just a bit rolled to a stop, having been here for a hundred years, and is is found by Debbie Castle, the the unhappy uh, school teacher, the local primary school, because there's something weird going on in these hills, and. One of the things he does with this, um, so we follow through those sections, the character of Miranda, who I'm sure we'll come on to discuss more, her growing up across the 1980s. To use a literary term, it's a Bildungsroman, I think, isn't it? Is that the right word? You know, a coming-of-age novel? Mm, definitely. Certainly in the middle section. Yeah, yeah, 100 Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I was reading Doctor Who at some points. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about childhood at the moment. Mm. And it's... It's this beautiful thing of this first section is almost uh, there's an element of like the fairy tale to it, but oh, there's yeah. but even more so there's the feeling of a story told to a child about something that's in, about some things that are incredibly adult and they're incredibly grown up. There's a great quote from someone somewhere I forget who it was who said that childhood only exists in the minds of adults because when you're a child it's just existence you don't know anything about it. It's only when years later you look back. And you you have this image of yourself as someone who's 
who was so was was relatively free of considerations if you if you were lucky in your childhood of a you know a, a, a very emotional time and one of experience and where there was still magic in the world and where you didn't understand things but you accepted that you didn't understand them and that is something that he captures utterly beautifully oh, here. Well, that, that's why we read books like Father Times. That's why we yeah. watch shows like Stranger Things. That yeah. aching longing for when you were a child and life was a lot simpler than it is now. Yeah. What you said there about the setting, that uh, the snowy hills of Derbyshire, mm. it, it is literally, it feels like a fairy tale setting. It's so beautifully described. You can, you can see it, can't you? Mm. The, uh, you can see that opening shot of... You know, a camera panning across just thick, thick falling snow, and that at night, and then a car's headlights just pulling their way through the darkness. It's uh, um... I actually think beyond sort of his amazing uh, grasp of character, the visual nature of his prose throughout was really because the whole thing I was just watching like a movie in my head. Uh, oh. Sometimes with Doctor Who prose, it's a bit impenetrable, and I'm like, what are they getting at here? I knew exactly what I was seeing in this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he 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 passes the absolute like acid test of that, which is that there's towards the end of this first section, there's a car chase and it's really exciting. And can you think of anything harder to make exciting? I know. In, in, a, pros. in pros than a car <laughs> chase. Oh, he looked in the mirror. She looked in the mirror. Oh, he went a bit fast. But it's it's utterly. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's not just it's not just his ability to to describe it in a way that exciting. It's that he's also really imaginative in his in his action and i guess what you know they call action choreography if this were television or cinema um there's a sequence towards the end of this where there's basically a car there's car chase as we've said uh and one of the cars is just you know your sort of standard not suburban but you know family 1980s car and the other one is a transformer described disguised as evil herbie and it's so and, and he this came out before the Transformers movies did, which are terrible, but um they have a very strong visual imagination around that idea of you know things transforming and the kineticism of what's going on. And he anticipates all of that. Like this car is going from car to transformer to grabbing at you, to firing a rocket at you, to running after you, to screaming around a corner. And all of that is captured perfectly. It's I oh god, I was reading uh, for some reason, I was reading one of those Marvel comic tie-in like prose novels not mm-hmm. long, not long ago. I don't know why I tried to not do these things. Um, and there's so many attempts to describe action in that, but it's all oh he grabbed her and she grabbed her and then he yeah. twisted her like this, and you can't follow what's happening and it doesn't mean anything and it's just boring. This was this was thrilling stuff. He's uh, same thing in the dying days. You know, he somehow manages to he's like. He's Doctor Who's Ian Fleming in that regard. You know, it's utterly thrilling prose. I mean, leaping ahead, so spoilers, everybody, to the last one. There's a fist fight between the Doctor and Ferran. Mm. That was visceral. I could feel every punch the way it was described. You know, noses being smashed in. And it, it, there is a real skill to write. That's like, but just to remind us all that it's still Doctor Who, mm. you know, because this is this incredible sequence with this transport and what screams more of the 80s than Transformers yeah. robots in disguise. <laughs> it's a VW Beetle. So it's the most mundane car imaginable. That's turning into this impressive robot. Oh, hundred percent. And and he doesn't he doesn't just do transformers. He does trans he does transformers, but he does it for scares. So one of the bits that really stuck with me since first reading this book, and every time I've gone back to it, it's a bit I've been waiting for, is there's a little scene where two of the other characters, the hunters, Thelash and Rum, who are a pair of hunters from the future who've been sent back in time to find the last one 
who is uh, who is Miranda, this little girl who is the last remaining member of the imperial family that rules the whole universe in the far future and have since been overthrown. Um, the way you're introduced to this character, Mr. Gibson is his name because he wants <laughs> because he wants because he wants to blend in. I think is the quote. So he calls himself Mr. Gibson. Um, oh, that's great. And you only find out that he's a transformer when the effing car that they've been driving around in turns. There's a but the scene that stuck with me was where they're talking to Mr. Gibson, and it's the first time you've met him. But because it's a book, he's again Lance Parkin is such a clever writer you're not told who Mr. Gibson is. You know, they're sat in the VW Beetle and they're talking to this very ominous voice. And in my head, the idea was someone in the back seat in the shadows, right? <laughs> and when you, and and I think he's deliberate, you know, that's the deliberate game he's playing on you. And then it's just, you're left with this, God, who is, who is Mr. Gibson? What could he be? And then when you read it again, knowing he's the car, it's so perfect because he he, oh, he, no. he has a laugh like the revving of a motorbike engine. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a bit unimpressed by everything as well. He's yeah. got a proper personality. <laughs> he's you know, so grumpy. Another thing I really got from these early scenes was, like, you, you remember those fantastic Spielberg movies of the 80s? Mm. I think he was yeah. leaning into that as well, you know, sort of yeah. finding something mysterious and magical out in the woods. Yeah, I, I really got that sense that I was watching a bloody good Spielberg movie. But the thing that impressed me most of all was um, Debbie Castle stumbling across the Doctor and the romance around that. Oh. How she's living this life with this brute of a man called Barry. Of course he's called Barry. Apologies for all Barrys out there. I'm sure you're very charming. Um, who basically sort of talks with his fists, plays snooker to impress people, sleeps around is a is a horrible bloke but she's found herself with this guy and she's sort of just accepted it but she's miserable and then she stumbles into the doctor's log cabin and the adventure begins oh it is this first section is uh, it it's it's romantic but romantic with both a big r and a little r you know before she before she stumbles upon the doctor in her car she's been listening to wuthering heights and prince charming which is Again, that's not flagged up. It's for you there, there for you to pick up on. And it's there on the last page, though, isn't it? When, with oh, the yes. album, <laughs> there's the there's the, the sound. But yes, the final page of the book has a soundtrack album, which right. is a cracker of an album. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, I listened it is. to it afterwards. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, spoilers ends ends by crashing into "I Want It All" by Queen. Oh yes. Bang. Um, oh, but um, but I think what Lance Barkin remembers with this book is that Paul McGann's a very good-looking man, that he is... He's the fanciable Doctor, right? Not so, Well, I'm not saying the others aren't, but he's the most classically handsome character. He's uh, And he, he sort of portrays him as a as a Mr. Darcy figure, or maybe a bit Heathcliff, or even a bit of Mr. Rochester with that, you know, sort of hidden hidden secrets that he doesn't know about. That you can totally see why, why Debbie would fancy him the moment he turns up, because that's the great thing about this conceit of him not knowing who he is, is is we can be introduced to this character that we've known for almost 40 years by this point and and meet him anew because there's there's nothing there about him. Um, we, we think we know everything about the Doctor, but now he yeah. can behave in genuinely unpredictable ways. And that continues yeah. right until the end of the range, until he gets yeah. his memories back. There's, there's moments throughout where I'm like, the Doctor wouldn't do that. Great, the Doctor's doing that, you know. Yeah, he's... Cause I think... He's he's portrayed as a as a, a sort of kind but tragic figure. That there is you get the sense that he's he's someone who 
at the base of it all is 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 a decent man is a good man and wants to be kind and want and sees an awful lot of beauty in the world but there's maybe also a bit of disappointment in that as well that they make the point in this book that by this point in the arc he has now been on the earth for about 100 years and he's now realized that he's never felt at home there that there's but that's not a deliberate thing on his part and it's not even necessarily because he's lived so long he's just recognized about himself there's something about me that doesn't make sense and it's not just that i've got two hearts there's a passage isn't it where he see he meets up with betty stubbold from the burning yes and she's an old woman now who's lived her life and had a family and mm. made an impact on the earth and i think it specifically says doesn't it explicitly says he didn't do that. He played it safe. He kept himself hidden because he knew he was different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it makes such a fascinating thing because there's a version of this story where it's just, you know, uh, serialized. Oh, the doctor has an adventure in the eighties this time. The doctor has an adventure in the seventies, but, and maybe if you were doing something that was, that was necessarily much more tied to the the range. Like you couldn't really do it now because obviously his arc is going to be led by, or her arc is going to be led by whatever's happening on the TV series. But this, this is probably the biggest step that the novels in the Virgin or the BBC eras ever took in actually just going, no, do you know what? Cause this point, 2001 doctor who wasn't coming back, you know, who knew if the book range was going to last another three years. So why not just go, do you know what? We'll, cut it all off and we'll do something big and different with it and so they can really get into the idea of i've lived 100 years not knowing who i am this is the book where he this is the book where he finds out he's a time traveler and yeah. he only finds that out second hand because there's loads of people turning up going you're a time traveler all these myths <laughs> about you in the universe yeah oh really good grief. yeah <laughs> yeah and it's uh, it's so wonderful because it allows you to really boil it back to basics of doctor who and I don't mean that in the sense of jollying around the universe, having four part adventures. It's really going back to that, the central idea of, you know, all the way back to the William Hartwell days, an unearthly child. All we know about this man is he, he travels around and no one knows who he is. Maybe not even him, you know, freeing himself from all of that. Um, it's, and I, of the earth art books I've read, this is the one that really seems to really get that idea and run with it to, quite a quite emotional and wistful and melancholy extent it's you know it's it's not a coincidence that we open on these windswept mountains in the snow because he's all alone and it is a really interesting place to find him actually genuinely emotionally alone so when this child is dropped into his lab suddenly he's got a purpose yeah although i've got to say going back to the romantic part for a second he's got absolutely no clue the powerful effects that he has (laughs) on the women stroke men around him does he he's completely oblivious to it it's no it's 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 utterly what it's utterly wonderful to the extent there's a bit where he's he goes to the he goes to the hospital um to try and get Miranda's medical records, to try and find out a bit more about her. And he's got no clue that the reason the nurse on duty is giving him all this stuff is because he's she's so just, hot. She <laughs> fancies the pants off him. He's just like, oh, well, well, I'll go along with this, I guess. Then. And he's so funny as well. I think one of the first exchanges between Debbie and the doctor is, oh, I've run over a UFO spotter. And he just goes, why? Like, <laughs> And I just I kept laughing out loud throughout this book with some of the dialogue. I, I love the bit where um so although he's oblivious to this, Debbie's husband, Barry, Barry, 
uh, Barry, it realizes that this very uh, that this very uh, attractive, sophisticated man is apparently taking interest in his wife, or at least his wife's taking interest in him. So he challenges him to a game of snooker <laughs> to assert his masculinity. He says to him, "Like, do you want to make this interesting?" And the doctor says, "Is that possible?" <laughs> <laughs> And then he pots, doesn't he, the doctor? Yeah, and yeah. he gets every fucking ball in every hole. But he was told at the beginning, you can't pot the white. So Barry still takes the wind. And he's that man that's always got to take the wind. He's always, yeah, he's always got to have an edge. There's no, there's no ounce of security in Barry, is there? And just, you know, there's so much of this going on in the book. The, like, the way that Barry is sleeping around but the second someone's sniffing around his wife he's angry and there's a lot of that going on in the book of sort of double standards and things like that even with the characters we like even with debbie in the second section and i'd say miranda in the third after she's killed somebody Mm. i like that i like that there's there's no sort of black and white with these people no because indeed and then he, he flips it around as well because um the the sort of denouement what the car chase league is part of in of this first section is is the hunters is the the baddies from the future have finally caught up with with miranda and sort of uh debbie's there and the doctor's there and barry sort of ends up getting uh sucked into it just through circumstance he happens to be you know in the car when it's happening but he's the one person who's like when they're debate they're like what do we do we need to keep them away from the census population he's like there are people here who are trying to kill a 10 year old girl we need to we need to sort them out they can't deal with it and you think but but it makes sense because he is you know it's he's not just a caricature there is a there's a there's a model within this man of who he's meant to be that is that is all about masculinity and although you may not like him that can that can have some virtues to it you know not everything about masculinity is is bad and in that moment you see no he he would it would be easy to make him run away or be scared or like oh this isn't our deal but it feels emotionally honest that everything we've learned about that man and his sense of right and wrong as as egocentric as it might be that he's going to be the one who is you know there's a bit where uh so uh zevron who is the uh the main villain who's leading the what fight. a space name he's got a z and a v in his name none more spacey but <laughs> <laughs> um, zevron but equally that you feel like Lance Barkin is, is playing with that because also yeah. Zevron's quite a good made-up space. If you if you want a deliberately space in him, it's not like my name is Tarn or something boring. You could see Brian Blessed Blessed bellowing it out, couldn't you, Zevron? Zevron! <laughs> and Salak is Salak. Oh, such an evil. These are such evil. Good names. Um, uh, Zevron is is going for Miranda, and Zevron. We should touch on himself. He is the uh, he's the son of the, the the woman who led the revolt against the Imperial family, and it is a blood. Um, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a blood legacy that he has to kill the last member of the Imperial family. But you get the sense that he he views that as a duty and not a duty he likes. He doesn't take any pleasure yeah. in it. It's something he needs to do, and so. You have Barry and Debbie with Miranda uh, curled up between them. And he says to them, leave. This isn't your fight. I'm not here to kill you. This isn't about killing people. This isn't about death and destruction. This is about ending something that has to be ended. And Debbie runs away. Debbie says, I'm sorry. And F's off because she's like, "I, you know, this is too much. And again, Although we like Debbie, we get that she's a school teacher and she's in the middle. She's she's at the denouement of a galactic war. Of course, she's going to run away. And it's Barry torn. who comes. 
because I was like, yeah. I was like, that's what a terrible thing you've done. And I was like, oh, no, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> but it's a believably terrible thing, mm. right? Because people do terrible things. People fail. Uh... And to 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 shine, so like, so like give good moments to the evil characters and then mm. to give moments where you question the good characters in this. That's part of what makes this such a good book. Oh, it's it's a it's it's a great book. I mean, there's so many things we can say about it. But um, can we yeah. um, can we turn it to uh, the 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 chess match sequence? Which oh. I, I didn't think that sequence would be better, but the the book did continually get better as it went along. Mm. Go on, off you go. So the chess sequence. So uh, we should touch on this when the Doctor meets Miranda for the first time. And Miranda is just this little girl in Debbie's class who seems quite quiet and. Um, Debbie meets the doctor and she invites him. She realizes he likes chess. And as a way to sort of set up another meeting, she invites him to come along because the primary school is going to chess club is going to be playing against the chess club of another school that week. And will you come along and watch please? And (laughs) of course, only he gets there because of the snow, the other team haven't turned up. Uh, And Debbie's called away. I think it's by Barry uh, on the phone and she comes back and the doctor has set it up such that he is playing chess against every every member of the school chess club at the same time, Inclu- and he set one up to go against Debbie as well. He's so blasé about it as well, isn't yeah. he? He's yeah, just sitting it- down at everyone, and he's slowly winning every single match. Yeah, he's Lance Parkin does this a few times with the Eighth Doctor, and I, I love his Eighth Doctor. Um, and I feel like no one else has ever quite done it the same way, which is he he picks up on that thing from the the TV movie that had been overlooked about the Eighth Doctor, which is that he has this he is supremely capable, like but he's but he's so wide eyed and kind of innocent about the world and the universe to such an extent, or at least so, not innocent, but he's so unprepossessing about it that he gets away with having just being able to do anything. That's the whole thing about knowing where people are going to go in the future. I don't think it's that he's got precognition. It's just, oh, I know that. <laughs> you know, And it's the same thing That's here. why that moment later in the book where he goes, oh, yeah, we're going to steal a space shuttle. I was yeah. like, yeah, well, of course you are. Yeah, you know, you can do anything. But he's not a super, He's you know, he is quite a British character. He's not He's not Iron Man or, you know, Mr. Fantastic, who's like, do, 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 I can sort this out, don't worry. He's just... Um, in fact, um, you know what, We he makes a point of that. Oh, I keep going to the last third, I'm so sorry. <laughs> he makes a point of that in the last third where he's standing up to Ferran in the climax and says, I'm standing on your ship, I haven't got a gun, I've got nothing that could... And, and I'm going to win, you know, like <laughs> it's 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 a it's a version of the Doctor that uh, actually Stephen Moffat did quite a lot of on TV as well with uh, with Matt Smith especially, which is understanding that real uh, really focusing on that tension between who the Doctor thinks he is and in the world, which is I'm just I'm just a very I'm I'm just a guy I've just gone out to do stuff I just want to experience the world and the universe i've got questions about myself but i don't you know i don't necessarily have any prepossession but the, the effect he therefore has a sort of cumulative effect in the world which is he is the guy who topples empires he is the guy that everyone should be scared of um and so to an extent his his reputation can overtake him and he can then almost use his reputation and his influence as another tool, but without it ever coming across here, at least as overly arrogant. It's just, as you say, it's just, it's a statement of fact. It's the, well, I, it's you know, the Peter. What's Capaldi. the line? He has the line, doesn't he? he goes, what is it? Um, 
the gun is loaded and it's useless or something like that in yes. the last third. Yeah. I it, thought it, that's, yeah. that makes the point beautifully. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, you have to be a really good writer and have a really good understanding of your characters and the characters that you're picking out of the toy box to make that work. Because where it doesn't work, it does just become, and I'm a Stephen Moffat fan, but I can acknowledge there are some points in some of his episodes where it does just become grandstanding and, you know, verging on the willy-waving. A but good here, man goes to war, I believe it's called. <laughs> it's your words, not mine. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, but here, it just feels like a statement of fact. You know, you can build to that point and just go... Because it, it's true, because we've seen this. We've seen these characters interact. We know how they all behave. We know what the situation is. You know, he it's, it's the chess moves, isn't it? It's about seeing all those steps ahead. It's about understanding that it's all about the situations and where your pieces are and how they work until it reaches a point where when he eventually beats Debbie, he says, he just moves a piece and he says something like, check in 32 and like the, the kid who's the best in the chess club goes oh, you can't do that actually <laughs> and, and they're all around the up. table going oh and my they all, god they go, oh what and then like debbie works it through like in each situation she's only got one move and in 32 moves he knocks her out but the joy of that scene is he totally underrates miranda and he goes yeah, yeah. No, no she's not as good as she thinks she is yeah and then she's the last one standing and he realises that she's letting him win. He goes, you've let me win. And she goes, yeah, well, you go, it wouldn't be much of a victory if you won 10 and lost one. And you're just like, they're made for each other. It is It is perfect. And in that moment, you because, because it takes, although it's not a very long book, there's a heck of a lot of story in it. Mm. So it feels like you've spent quite a while with these characters before you mm. actually focus on Miranda for the first time because I think she's just introduced as one of the other kids and one of the kids yeah. in the room it's um, exactly what Justin Richards did with the doctor in the burning I don't know if you read the burning not yet they keep so this is his first book as the amnesiac doctor so you're waiting for him to appear mm. and chapter after chapter Justin Richards keeps introducing an eccentric fellow of one kind or another and you're going oh that's the doctor that's the doctor and it's that like you get you do it about three or four times and then there's a dinner scene where everyone comes together Mm. And the doctor's just there at the table and says something. And it takes you about three pages to realise he's been there talking this whole entire time. It's a very clever thing to do. And she she does seem just very innocuous until she, you realise she, she's not. She does. And in that moment, you realise, because you've spent this time with the doctor, you've got to know this version of the doctor, this man who is who is alone and doesn't really understand himself, that it's so significant and carries such weight when he suddenly clocks that there's someone here who might actually be a bit like him and then there's a again a, just another just beautiful scene that i can see i can see it as how you, you direct it with the the vast black white vast black sky above them with all the stars above and the snow falling down and then the white below them which is just the pair of them on the um playground outside the fronts of the school while she's he's waiting for debbie and she's waiting for her parents to come and pick her up and they have this discussion about space just looking up at stars and they discuss the solar system and i mean it's that spark is very good at doing two things at once so on the one hand it's charming because it's just this beautiful little moment where two people 
are kind of trying to nicely up one up each other and show how much they know they more. And the doctor's trying to tell her all these informa- all these facts about space to kind of encourage her. And he says, "Oh, well, Jupiter has thirteen moons, and you know, there's the ast- we've got the asteroid belt, which is the remains of a, a planet that was torn apart." And she says, "No, that your 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 understanding of space is completely is completely." <laughs> I don't know. They're always finding more moons of Jupiter, and the asteroid belt's just what's left over from the planets forming. And what's what's it, that's just such a lovely little exchange. But also, he's also kind of there's also the Easter egg, tickly Doctor Who fan element of in real terms, she's absolutely right, and in Doctor Who terms, he's completely right as yeah, well. Absolutely. Uh, he doesn't forget that scene as well, does he? Because he plays that same scene again with the Doctor looking out at stars, but at the end of the book, up in space, where he comes to the conclusion, this is my home, this is where I belong. So yeah, he returns it, to that. Yeah, because within the arc, it's the it's the penultimate book. And the and it's really interesting. I think uh I think from some interviews I've read them elsewhere, in the sense that he's a Star Wars fan and he understands he understands why the Empire Strikes Back really works, which is that it's it shows you how you can perfectly do a penultimate story of setting everything up putting people in motion pointing in the right direction and part of the doctor's arc is this is the book where he understands a little bit more about himself but also recognizes <clears throat> the reason i've never felt at home on earth is because i don't belong on earth um and it's yeah it's, it's a wonderful arc that he's set up here then we I mean, the playground and it works so brilliant because we kind of want him back in the tardis and back off having yeah. adventures again you know so and yeah. this is the the biggest step to it. mind you there's that brilliant jesus i'm gonna go back to the last third again i'm so sorry <laughs> we're talking about the first one but where he sees into the future and suddenly mm. there's glimpses of i don't know books as far as anacrophobia grim reality mad dogs and englishmen all sorts he get he even gets a glimpse of uh the, of a dalek in that moment because oh, yeah before the copyright <laughs> no <laughs> no no sorry no, joe no. it's what, a reference what? to the time war you know that it's he that's sees, right yes. he sees new series doctor who happening <laughs> it was always supposed to be the council of eight in some time never yes yeah that, that yeah. was the plan those <laughs> skeleton people playing chess <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's that's why he plays chess here joe actually i think you're fine yeah well there you go actually the <laughs> chess motif has been running ever since curse of fenric hasn't it so yeah because that's how you oh also i remembered when debbie first meets him in his house he's got a chessboard set up and there's a piece on it that isn't meant to be there it's just from another box and she's like that's not meant to be there and he's like isn't it and you're like uh that's the <laughs> that's the doctor the doctor's a chess piece that's not meant to be there i got i got it i'm smart Gosh, i feel like you and me have been bewitched by this book you know it's a really good book it's a very very in fact it's uh and we'll sort of we'll come to a conclusion towards mm. the end but it's a book like you said it's not a tie-in writer just knocking out a book at his computer he's writing the best book he could possibly write it just happens to have doctor who slapped on the cover yeah but also it's a it's also an incredibly good doctor who book this isn't um this is there, i know there are some other books in this range where you know they've also been quite open this was an idea i had for a book it wasn't commissioned as that i reworked as doctor who idea this is an idea in embedded in Doctor Who, in who the Doctor could be, in what that setup could allow you to do, but managing to tell a story that we haven't seen at any other time. But with only the vaguest of continuity references, and that's what makes this work brilliantly, and this run brilliantly, is that that they kind of ditch the past and they're Mm -hmm. telling original stories. 
And you're right, this is like a quintessential Doctor Who story where he's up there in space at the end, toppling empires, you know, bringing, uh, sorting a revolution for the slaves and all of this. It's, mm. it's all Doctor Who staples. But there's no Daleks, no Sidemen, no Mars, and none of that nonsense. Well, are there no Daleks? Is there a Dalek in this? Well, have you have you tried rearranging the letters in the name Clade? So no, yes. So Are you okay. Serious? Oh we, God, I've got to read it again. Now we're getting into it. Okay. Uh, in how did the, I so, miss that? Okay, so here we go. So there's an idea in the ancestor cell, the middle section of the uh, Eighth Doctor Adventures, the one where they blow up Gallifrey, the and you for the remainder of the range there is no Gallifrey. There is a thread dipped in here and there, the suggestion that the Doctor is not the only Time Lord who has survived. In The Adventuress of Henrietta Street, there's a character who might be the master. In I think it's in the Gallifrey Chronicle, in Timeless as well, we meet a couple of other characters who are seemingly... They're in Mad Dogs and Englishman. Exactly, and in the Gallifrey Chronicles at the end, he sort of has these visions of these other people who are important to him. And this was a sort of thread that ran underneath the Eighth Doctor Adventures, but was never properly realized because of the end of when they did which is the idea that there's uh, i think it's four surviving time lords yes they 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 explicitly mention that don't they yes a couple of times and they and um so sitting in between the first section of this novel see this is good and the second section of this novel lance well parkey wrote, wrote a short story for a fanzine called the school of doom which is just after the doctor has adopted Miranda because her parents who've brought her back in time who are not really her parents um are killed uh saving her and in this short story it's 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 Miranda's first day at school just after she's been adopted by the doctor uh, her new school and there they meet the headmaster who is a man who seems to know more about the doctor than the doctor does and it's does he have a beard is it sinister eyebrows oh i can't i can't remember now but i i just saw the demon head master so (laughs) um and he explained he he basically basically long story short lance parkin's idea here was that where all of this is heading is that those four surviving time lords will eventually unite, be brought together by the master, who is one of the surviving ones, who says, the time lords are no more. We have a universe that is in chaos because there's no one looking over it. We need to bring that order because we're the only ones capable of it. Those four time lords do so in the far future and become the imperial family. And the the emperor, so Miranda's father in the future, who was overthrown and murdered, and whose daughter was sent back in time and adopted by the Doctor, is the Doctor. That's why there's a refer- there's references throughout it to people saying, oh yes, I can see the resemblance between the Doctor and Miranda. He is, there's this, once you once, reread, you have to go back and reread it now, because once you know... This is that, a revelation to me. Yeah, so the Doctor is, there's so many references to it, like there's so many perfect bits, like there's a bit where Miranda recalls visiting a like $5 psychic, and she gave him her some rubbish advice, which is in a cave in Greece, a, mis- a mystic had told her for five dollars that she was her father's daughter and the answers lay within her. And there's a bit where uh, one of the characters from the future like um, mistakes the doctor. for Someone has he thinks someone is suggesting the doctor is the emperor. And he goes, that's not the emperor. I met the emperor. The emperor was and then gets cut off. And you're going to say much older or something like that. Do you know, I do remember initially when they did have the Daleks mm. and they were going to bring this all to a conclusion with the Daleks, Lance Parkin was going to write that book. 
Was that going to be this one? I well, it might would have been a bit late in this, but this would presumably have tied it all up. And so, yeah, the clade. So the people Zevron Salak, not Salak isn't a clade, but separate point. Zevron Ferron, who we've mentioned, who come back are the clade. They are the faction underneath the Imperial family who overthrew, who murdered the Imperial family, and have now come back to murder Miranda to cement their rule in the future. And they're also the ones who keep telling you that the Imperial family were awful. We only have their word for that. Um, and in fact, there's a few points throughout the book where you're specifically told to question their presentation of other people because they describe the doctor as being a war criminal who turns his companions into terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, but the clade, yeah, clade is the clade are the descendants of the Daleks, that they are the Daleks went full circle in their evolution, just like the Thals, and ended up as Aryan supermen in the future. And that's that's who they are that's where the daleks end up at this point millions of years in the future being ruled over the imperial family that's why they that's why they did it and again when you know that i did i i sort of the first time i read it i cottoned on a couple of points like oh what it was only afterwards i realized going back now he's such a apart from the house he's such a a bloody cheeky writer so here we go so clay is an anagram of dalek and carled right what else we got because i started keeping notes to them so i was like you bastard so uh yeah, um, clade, the word itself, is a, a group of organisms believed to comprise all the evolutionary descendants of a common ancestor. The opening description of their world at the start is basically a description of Scaro at the start of Genesis of the Daleks. They fly around in saucers and they have hover discs. When Ferran and his guards are wearing helmets, their voices are electronic barks. Um and the best one, when he shows Miranda the ceremonial knife that he's meant to kill her with, <laughs> he says it's been sanctified by the gods of war and legacy. And the two Eighth Doctor Adventure Dalek books are... Oh, come on! <laughs> it's... It, I... look, look at this! I've just opened the, the book on the first yeah. page. Chapter Zero, cheeky. Planet of Death. It was a planet shrouded in fog. That's the beginning of Genesis of the Daleks! Yes! Goodness there's, e- there's even a bit like his final last most cheek oh Zevron one of them says they're going to exterminate Miranda uh, at one point and the final most cheeky bit again in the third section there's a bit where they're trying to cut through a uh, a bulkhead oh no you'll love you'll like this one the decorations on the saucer are the decorations from the Peter Cushing Dalek City um, all the- <laughs> and, the- and there's a reference to an electronic heartbeat all the way through I shall start um, rereading it tomorrow Yes, and there's a reference to a door right at the very end, a door on their ship. Go, you can't cut through that. It's it's solid cladenium. Oh, I did. <laughs> How did all of this pass by me? Oh, it's 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 utterly perfect. So yeah, uh, the clade of the Daleks. So I and... now rescind my statement that there was no continuity in this book. <laughs> there was but, in fact a lot, but it's but all he, very yeah. cleverly disguised. He wears. There's there is deep deep lore in this book but it is worn so lightly that you can absolutely just skim over the top of it the thing is is the characters are so engaging and mm. so great to be i don't really think you give a lot of that detail unless you're that way focused because mm. the focus is on the people isn't it yeah. throughout yeah. the book yeah if if the characters were not so well realized and so as you say engaging you you, you would necessarily that stuff would stand out more because it would just feel like you know fan wank, but but it, it it isn't that. It's something much cl- it's something much cleverer and richer, but also also cheeky. You know he's doing he's going yeah, go on, they're, they're dark, aren't they? yeah. And when I you mean, read it, it, 
cheeky. He's got a sonic suitcase, for goodness <laughs> sakes. You know? Even, Debbie gets the line, even the sonic suitcase. <laughs> and I swear at one point he said, I'm going to reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Oh, he says something like, he says, yes, don't worry, I'm just, there's something about, someone makes a point about neutrons, and he goes, I'll just be reversing the polarity. But again, it's all part of him becoming the Doctor, isn't it? There's a glorious moment where, hang on, what's the line? He's, tell, he's telling Miranda stories, and she says, there's a planet where moths and ants are at war, oh. places where ant hills were the size of mountains. There were men made of licorice all sorts, and there was an empress who lived in a big jam jar, which but, is a mixture of TV and books. Yeah. It's great. But and there's a reference to he says all he's, he's asked what he can remember remember about himself and he's just saying not much he said not I don't think I was originally from here it's I think I was from a large family I, <laughs> I see you Lance Parkin I've read Longborough I know what you're doing <laughs> don't think you got that one past me oh well, let's not get into the looms all right <laughs> maybe um, we'll cover that another time <laughs> but okay so let's I mean you did almost provide a perfect segue into the second segment there is there anything else you wanted to cover in the first oh i mean we could just go on for so long but it's uh let, let, let's let's move on you can't stay in childhood forever no we're heading into the the mid 80s and thatcher's britain never oh. more gruesomely realized now can i read a passage to you please please do there's a paragraph here which uh which i feel sums up my opinion of Thatcher's Britain perfectly. The employers had once flourished here, uh, had retreated, leaving behind burnt out and boarded out shops. The people who eat out a living on this estate did so by exploiting the system, state welfare payments. The deputy couldn't help but think that the system was exploiting them, removing all forms of income, police coverage and public transport, failing to maintain communal property and facilities, closing every factory, car plant, car plant shipyard coal mine steelworks and textile mill for a hundred miles around and offering nothing in its place sometimes it's just really hard to get a sense of what an author's politics are when you're reading not them. there though <laughs> <laughs> no it is uh he is he is red in tooth and claw in his because in the first section as well he's he sort of there's all these little references to oh the town still had a hospital in those days ah that in this middle section there are some scathing criticisms and in fact it it reminds me of rusty davis that is best yeah when he takes some political stabs in the new series yeah and you know let's not you know, we should we should get on to it. The the most satirical element of that is that the doctor has we find the doctor in a very different place <laughs> that he is he has engaged with society because he needs to provide for Miranda now. He's adopted mm. her and he wants he says, you know, I don't want her to miss out on any opportunities. And the way to that is to have lots of money, which is a kind of critique in of itself. And he's he's described as Thatcherism personified at one he, point. Yeah, is the is the ta- one of Times people of the decade or something <laughs> like that. And he's done it because he's become a management consultant. And he does it where it's 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 such a great Again, it's such a great idea of how you do Doctor Who in this because um, he sort of takes Doctor Who at face value, but then puts it into the real world. And, you know, he can make those two gears mesh. And so the Doctor has kind of infiltrated Thatcherite Britain in the same way that if it were like some alien authoritarian society and he basically goes into these companies 
sorts goes into these companies that are all working sorts everything out give make uh, give speeches that make all the workers feel empowered and leaves the world having been set a better place he's still saving the world if he can't remember why he's doing it do you know there's one great bit as well isn't it where they go um how many layoffs are there going to be and he goes why would we ever do that <laughs> yeah yeah why and oh there's a great bit as well where so he he, through circumstance he meets De- Debbie and he come back into each other's lives and she's like what how have you done that and he does the, it's the best ever uh they he literally says I'll explain later but it's about <laughs> how you make millions out of management consultancy Lance couldn't you have added that bit please I could have done with the tips <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I've written here about this middle section I just mm. wrote I put teen drama genocide hormones Ferran and Miranda potent stuff Oh, uh, it, there's it, a there's a lot of emotion in this section, isn't it? Now there's a lot, it's raw. Oh, it is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I uh, so when I first read this book, I was probably of a comparable age to the age that the characters are in it, and I remember, at the, it was the point at which I really began to emotionally engage with it as well. Like I I've recognised a lot of what they were talking about, a lot of their feelings, the awkwardness, the fear, the you know self criticism. There's a lot of Someone said of this bit that there's a lot of teenage angst, but teenagers are full of angst. So of course there's of course there's gonna be. And um it's wonderful. And he Miranda becomes much more of a, a viewpoint person here, and she's worried that she's always like just feels like, oh, I'm just taking everything too too seriously. I need to loosen up, I need to engage with stuff a bit more. And like, you know, what teenager hasn't felt like that at some point, but also she doesn't know it. It's because she's she's the daughter of the emperor of the universe from the far future. She says she's sort of exact. She's seeing herself from the outside that she's examining things too much rather than just experiencing things. So when she's yeah. kissing Bob, Bob, of course he's called Bob. Bob, that's right. You did the Blackadder one. Oh, sorry, you. which he which he he likes Miranda because she's the one person who says his name without doing a Rowan Atkinson. Oh, can we talk about Bob for a moment? Oh, Bob, yeah, lovely Bob, Bob. But what an idiot. Bob. <laughs> oh, he is. Uh, and again, it's such a he's so he's Miranda's not quite boyfriend, a man who who who, who fails to become Miranda's boyfriend. She and... sort of effectively decides to go out with him just because it will get a best friend off her back. Like, oh, you should have one. All right. I'll, him, he'll do. Yeah. And he, he sort of ran. and it's and it's such a wonderfully um, tenderly realised uh sort of relationship between the two of them because she's got this sort of all right go on and he's kind of like oh okay and that sense of you know when you're that age you're very aware that you're that age and that, that you are heading towards adulthood and that so much of what you do at that age is kind of a performance of what you should be doing at that age um which uh, yeah their first awkward fumbly kiss and uh he she's explained to him that she has two hearts and so she, she says put your hands onto my top on my rib cage, <laughs> yeah. and there's a reference. He's like, he's like, well, he's, he's, it's just a lovely little reference to him chancing it by just brushing the bottom of her bra. And it's all of this stuff. When you say this is in a Doctor Who book, it sounds like it should be really awkward and really kind of oh, girls. Right? I was <laughs> absorbed in these sequences. Like, I, I, I don't know if it's yeah. because the characters were so potent, the dialogue was so good. I don't know what it was. And it was only when I ended one chapter and I was explaining it to my other half, mm. and I went, "This don't sound like a Doctor Who book at all, does it? It's like Doctor Who nine oh two one oh." I yeah, I remember thinking of it that when I was reading this, that it felt, or at least when I look back on it, that it felt like one of the first 
grown-up books I'd I'd actually read. And I think actually, you know, would fit really well with a lot of modern Doctor Who audiences. Certainly, you know, when they're trying to get back that younger audience, as they seem to be doing in sort of RTD2, maybe not the child audience, but, you know, uh, teenage, late teenage, and into, you know, early young adulthood. This is exactly the sort of stuff that should go into it. It's baffling this hasn't had a reprint, isn't it? Given that they have selected Virgin and BBC books, like some of the, some yeah. of the more prestige ones, and reprinted them. That it is, you're right. This is so in tune with the new series. Oh, it's perfect. It's um, it it is it is available on Kindle legally. Uh, they did do a brief thing where they made a few of the BBC books available as print on demand and Kindle, and it is still up. So if you want to, I think it's only two ninety nine on Amazon. God, it's the best. When you think of some of the crap you could spend uh, a tenner on these days after listening to this episode the sales are going to spike you know lance parkin is going to be made oh i hope so he deserves it uh while we're talking about bob what a bob i don't want to leave (laughs) um, you know the bit where he's talking about his comic books uh, this is this is exactly the bit i was going to talk about so so he again God, I identify. I never did this, but I could so easily have done this at this age. Um, he, he, they've been out, and he realizes that he's not going to be able to get to the comic book shop before it shuts. If uh, if if he goes home, if he, he takes all the way home, then goes back out. So she ends up going to the comic book shop, which is called LV four hundred two six or something after the, the planet and alien, which is just perfect. So he ends up on their first date taking her to a comic book shop, and clearly like realizing what he's done but also not wanting to uh not wanting to miss the new issue of teen titans um and she and she's asking questions and she says she she smiles at him no having knowledge and enthusiasm is never a bad thing bob decided not to demonstrate quite how much knowledge he really had about comics <laughs> that line made me die i was like <laughs> oh how many dates have i had when i've been there <laughs> oh, i am um, I, I i i i cannot look at anyone right now i uh oh god oh the memories oh god <laughs> it's, i get it now sometimes you know i say I, i'll run a doctor i'm oh, sorry i run a podcast and they go oh what about and i go oh doctor who and now i usually just get the answer why <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. Oh, but you know, it's you know, it's it's such a such a wonderful tribute to our to our other halves, right? There's still moments where my my wife, bless her, we go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she will be maintaining eye contact, and she will be giving every appearance of listening as I'm explaining that actually the imperial family are, are the last remaining time ones. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she'll do like the mum thing, sort of tap you on the head and said, "All right, dear, let's have dinner. Come on." Yes, yeah, exactly. That. Although I've got to confess, my other half is a Doctor Who fan. I, I met him through podcasting, so I'll, I'm in the very dangerous position that one sort of false conversation or opinion, and we'll never know the relationship again. You 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 could end up like the Doctor and the Master. You know, if it's just if it's just the two of you, then you'll just keep going and going until the universe burns. He's such a relentlessly optimistic person, <laughs> Mike. You know, and you know he loves all of it, and so he's turned me around on Battlefield, Keys of Mar- all of it. You know. I love it all now because of him. Oh, thing. But you know, um, going back to Bob a second, Bob, um, because do you know, genuinely, I'm not taking a piece when I say this. The tensest sequences in this book were at that party where all those emotions are in play. Ferran is there, ready to mm. strike at any minute. Dinah's there, trying to cop off with anyone she can find. They kiss. 
he says the very unfortunate thing of, was that your first kiss? <laughs> you never say that after you kiss somebody. Um, the inference is not flattering. <laughs> then they all go to bed. Yeah. And the most tensest moment was where, and I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten where this was ending. Ah! She wakes up and she's like, oh, no, I should have given him a chance. I'm going to do it. I'm going to lose my virginity to Bob tonight. And so she creeps through the hall and she becomes very aware that he's not in his bedroom. Of course, he's having it off with Dinah in the other room. And ah, just just how Lance Parkin managed to portray those feelings, the anger, when she punches him the next day. I remember going through all this as a teenager. It's it, your your heart breaks, doesn't it? That moment when she she sort of knows where where it, the way he captures it. It's not like she sees he's not there and goes, "Oh," but no. that that dawning realization of, "Oh, well, Dinah's room," and opens the door. And we know, and we're just screaming, yeah. "Don't look, please!" Oh, and and then to cap it all off. When the, oh, when Bob tries to go and make it up the next day to a because and it's such a wonderfully twisted thing because at that point she has rejected Bob and so Bob's obviously very hurt so Bob obviously makes a hideously bad decision but you you sort of you then catch up with him the next day and you sort of see how he's got there in his head and he's like oh God why why if did only I do... I'd have just stayed in bed if only I just stayed in bed and. He, but of course he's, he's a young man. Of course he didn't. Oh, but it's perfect because then he turns up at the, he turns up at the house, and the doctor at this point knows that the clade are back and are, are coming after Miranda. So he thinks he basically thinks that Bob is Ferran, who's everyone's younger brother, come to kill her. <laughs> and so he goes and confronts him, and he's the doctor is so is so happy when it's when Bob says I'm Miranda's boyfriend, and there's a line about <laughs> oh I'm just about to take I'm just about to drive Miranda to school. Do you want to lift? And oh, Bob's like yeah, okay. Sure. And not there's a line about he he got in the front, Miranda got at the back, and he could he could feel the the hatred drilling through oh, the back of the car seat. Oh, so great! Do you know what it did? It reminded me of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at its best. The way that mm. sort of series one to three of Buffy captured the pain <laughs> of maturing and hitting puberty. It, oh, it was just that, that might have been my favourite section of the book. You know, it's really good, isn't it? It's it's as you say, it's the bit that when you describe it sounds the oddest. Like you do it in Doctor Who, but really. But again, it's a testament to his ability as a writer that this is engaging with all of these things really capably. You know, this that whole section could be a book, um, a book separate to mm. all of this. You know, that um, that is just about that. It's just sold to a, a you know a, a YA or, or a young uh, a, a young adult audience. And I did feel there was a series of books in this like he obviously he has to skip huge periods of the 80s Mm. to tell his story across the decade and like you said there's a short story there there's a short story in the Gallifrey Chronicles as Mm. well where we go back to this and I'm like god there's a hundred stories to tell here that we're not seeing it's again it's yeah he's really because it's not just that it's this can be read separately to the rest of the earth arc everything that you need to know in terms of the ongoing arc is is given to you in a really you know really nice way that you won't notice um but it's also really you know making use of that art to tell this story because you know i would love to see a version of this done on tv um mm. and actually it sort of feels like he's writing it in a way that's sort of it's quietly demonstrating you could do this on a you know decent tv budget certainly the first two sections and the second section in particular you know you sort of have to remind yourself because 
because you're so aware of the context of all of this that you know it's it's sort of the final battle of this of this galactic war you know it takes place in a a big section takes place in a leisure center you know the the bit where Farron first catches up and almost kills her is just in a leisure oh, in the showers it's not tense that bit oh it's so, i had to go to bed at that point it was getting very late and i was <laughs> like i'm desperate to know if he's gonna either cop off with her or kill her with that knife but you think how little drama some writers managed to get out of, you know, war- you watch yeah. some of the work, some of the less good Star Wars series that are about at the moment, entire battle fleets, you know, drilling down. I'll make and- a comparison. Look at Jim Mortimer's Bell Tempest earlier in the run, where he is destroying planets at a rate of knots mm. and mass murdering people like in on every single page and none of it impacts at all none of it means anything it's not one that's just too big scale and two i don't know i just couldn't engage with any of it and yet a, a teenage girl walking across mm-hmm. a dark uh hallway to her boyfriend's bedroom yeah i was absolutely gripped oh and he 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 demonstrates that ability in the big things but in the tiny little moments as well like just genuinely in catching you off guard with things because he knows what he's doing and he know you know he, he he's confident his ability to have these effects on you that he's then so confident that you can then cut across it in a way that really works so yeah. the bit where after miranda has walked in on bob and uh, uh bob and diner um uh in bed together and she storms out and you know that ferron has been waiting outside her to come out the whole time and finds us you're like oh no this is it this is what's going to happen isn't it because because of Bob shagging about, Miranda's going to get killed by Ferrin or he's going to capture her. And he walks out and Ferrin is moving in for the kill. And then she turns around, sees him and just goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> and you, and, and you're so thrown off by that, that he's, that you are there with Ferrin all of a sudden, who is so thrown off by that, that he finds himself just having to escort her home because yeah. he's like, I can't. I can't kill her. This would be so anticlimactic. I cannot do it like this. (laughs) In fact, we had several moments like that where it's like, no, this isn't the myth a lot, you know, the the great death of the last one that I envisaged in my head. If he'd just done it, the book might have had a very different ending. Yeah, there's exactly that. There's the um is the yeah, it's the scene where where they're in the showers together and he thinks he he'd pictured them battling in robot armor on a desert planet or something. And then the teacher catches them and he goes, Oh no, I can't do it now. This is too embarrassing. How can I tell this story in years to come? Speaking oh, of story in years to come, when just to tail off this bit, when Miranda you know, Bob and Miranda dropped off in front of school and he tries to say something he tries to say something to her and Miranda very calmly listens to everything he said and then punches him in the face. Oh, great. And there's a line about in years to come, because this is where Bob exits the story. It's a line like in years to come, Bob would tell people that he'd said, I'll take that as a no then. <laughs> or as anyone there just heard him give a little yelp. <laughs> and you know what? I, that line resonated with me more than anything. I think back to I was thinking back to all the mistakes in my life yeah. where I've given a, like, a heroic spin in my favour <laughs> over the years. I was like, oh, I am Bob. Jesus. Although oh. actually alongside all of this you've got the doctor rescuing debbie Mm. from the ultimate symbol of thatcher's britain this dreadful broken down tower block that you know the other two have been torn down this one's just been left to rot because they didn't have the money to tear it down (laughs) it is scathing isn't it uh and in a 
beautiful moment of visual poetry. Mm. He turns it into an enormous tower of roses. Oh, it's got the way that's written as well. Them all just sort of exploding from the top down, and all of the all of the guards. There's a reference to a gu- one of the clade guards trying to jump out of a window to escape it, and he turns into roses on the way down, and sort of he and his, all his weapons explode into petals as they hit you the ground. You can see it, can't you? You can. It's perfect. I can then, see it just in CGI though. Just yeah. an explosion of red. And then and then the scene cuts back to the party with Miranda saying, Do you like Guns N' Roses? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's great. So, like in the first section, we've done sort of Spielberg. In the middle section, we've condemned Thatcher. It's John Hughes in the middle section as well. I think quite Please. a bit. Yeah. 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 Well, well, what about the last section then? The last section, nicely done. Is uh is where it goes full blooded late nineties late eighties early nineties James Cameron sci fi epic. Um, I kept hearing the music from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, in the back I, of my head. I, yeah, I tell you what I thought of. I thought of those films like I say James Cameron. So I was thinking of films like The Abyss and like Terminator Two: Judgment Day, where they you know or Aliens to a lesser extent where you know model work was at its absolute zenith and direction and it was big meaty sci-fi all of a sudden because he captures the tones of the different years that's that's why it's quite generically referred the sections are, are not i think you can work out the years but they are just called the early 80s the mid 80s and the late 80s and he's trying to capture the sense the memory of those of those times through the cultural references. I mean, this, is, the, this section opens with the fall of the Berlin Wall, doesn't it? So it's yeah, very specifically dated there. Very specifically. And there's references to things like um, Miranda's got a Batman T-shirt because the, the Batman logo was, you know, was everywhere. And, you know, that stuff just knocked around for years afterwards because there was yeah. so much of it. Um, you know, it's, it's like you can see this is just when they're beginning to realise that CGI is a thing. There's a bit where, like, she gets... She gets so... Uh, Ferran comes back for her, uh, and it's been it's been decades for him, but it's only been about three years for her, and it's because they've taken all this time in the far future to dig through the records to try and find another time where Miranda turns up, um, so they oh, can go back and abduct and her. And the only reference they could find to her was a movie, wasn't it? Yes, it's something like. So it, it, the first, yeah, it's the fall of the Berlin Wall and she has finally lost her virginity to a... Amateur filmmaker or something who goes on to... He's a student filmmaker or something That's like it, that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, he wins the best foreign language picture Oscar in 2017 and it's based on his life and you're in it played by Jodie Foster's daughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course it's Jodie Foster's daughter. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, and there's a bit where she gets abducted, and the way it's described, maybe this is just because I was so, you know, in in my head for thinking of this, but I was thinking that feels like we've got CGI now <laughs> in yeah. the '80s, you know. So he's even writing it as if the special effects are progressing as we yeah. go. <laughs> Please, a mo- a moment for the um for the doctor on the plane writing on the napkins how to steal a space shuttle <laughs> i was in a bath laughing my head off my brother's like what's going on i said you don't want to know <laughs> and he's just ha- he's just handing napkins to debbie who's next to him he's trying to work them all out <laughs> oh, gosh it's gorgeous it's 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 beautiful and um so Fer- ferrin's turns up and he's now he's now middle-aged and 
there's also this other thing, you know, we've, we've touched on the stuff about who the Imperial family actually are and who the clade actually are. Lance Parkin does this in a few of his books. It's really there in Cold Fusion, which is this thing of, of like hidden narratives so that there are there are kind of stories or subplots going on alongside the story that he's aware of, but maybe the uh, the reader is only semi semi cognizant of in some ways, but they 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 do impact what we're seeing. They have an effect on it. So part of that is who you know the identity of the imperial family and how that's all playing in. Um, but it's also what's going on with the clades in the future because we only meet them as they come back. But if you follow it, you can clearly tell. You know, at the start when Zevron comes back, they are, when we first meet them at the, in the prologue, the bit on Scaro, they are triumphant. They are a mighty empire. And then in the middle section, there's a reference to he's come back because um, uh, the it's all beginning to like fall apart a little bit. They're beginning to um, sense that maybe the factions aren't, underneath them aren't really lining up anymore. And then by this time, at the end of the late 80s, he's come back not to kill her, but to marry her because it's all going to shit and he needs to keep his claim by marrying the Empress of the Universe. He wants access to the, and this was giving me massive um, labyrinth vibes, the Librarinth. Librarinth. It's, it's a library stroke labyrinth. Yes. So that automatically just sounds fabulous. Um, and it, what is it? Only her family have access to the knowledge of where well, that is. Well, yes, I and I'm beginning to think now they're they're time lords. You need you need access. I'm going. Are you are you doing the Eye of Harmony from the TV movie here? Do you need her? Do you need her to look at? I, I, this is the thing because Lance Parkin does so much of this hiding stuff from you. You begin to like theorize for yourself whether you've got to remember you know mike that he has written you know five versions of the complete history of doctor who have you seen those books he knows it all so if anyone could pull together a ton of continuity and sort of discreetly slip it into a book it's last parking well Speaking of, if if you do read a history, Lance Parkin's uh, history of the Doctor Universe, you if you read up on the uh, the bit about this, so the spaceship that Ferrin comes back in, we should mention because it's a character in its own right. It's called the the Supremacy, and it is it's the best spaceship ever. It's a city in space. It's so ahead of its time that it's it's beyond state of the art for the far future, and. Uh, they say we, you know, it was built by people by a race long dead who may never even have, who may never even have existed, or something like that. Now, in I'm making lots of '80s references, and we're now in the late '80s mode. It's the culture from Ian M. Banks. It's a culture ship, right? In Doctor Who terms, in a history of the universe, he goes, "Yeah, it's the people from the also people who built it." <laughs> and you go, "Yeah." Again, you don't need to know that, but once you do, you're like, "Oh, but what's?" What's great about that sort of continuity reference and the stuff with the clade as well is when you're given the answer, when you're told what that's really a reference to, it's not like, ah, there we go. I've got the gag and solve the crossword. It makes it, it adds another layer. Oh God. So the, the people are gone in this future. And mm. like that, it's it's exactly if you're I'm going starting to, to think you know there's a ton of easter eggs in this book that i didn't notice at all <laughs> i do you know what? i'm sure i didn't catch them all because one thing that i only caught this time through and it's in reading the last section i think ferron uh listeners of a sensitive disposition may wish to cover their ears now i think ferron is a product of incest that is implied because 
there's Go references because of Zevron, his brother, who turns up in the first, and there's so many references made to the age gap between Zevron and Ferran that Zevron is already like basically middle aged at the start, and his and Ferran is an infant, and there's lots of references made that, and there's sort of weird allusions made by Zevron to his mother who led the revolution and that he's doing this for her, and of course there's the whole kind of there's the whole Aryan element that is made about them mm-hmm. and their genetic purity because they're Daleks. And then in the last bit, there's a bit where one of the minor characters who's the pilot of the supremacy, who's really worried about going up against the Doctor, and he recalls all the reasons he's scared of the Doctor. And there's a reference to um, he killed Ferran's father. And we've never heard up to this point that he killed Ferran's father, as far as I recall. But the but then he says even Salak never came back from that one. And Salak was the guy who went back with Zevron and was also killed. So, oh God, so that again adds another layer. So of course they are. Of course the Daleks are going to end up shagging each other because who else would who else would they sleep with if they think they're the best things in the universe? Jesus Christ, even that bit where they're talking about Miranda and Ferran together and about how they're both blonde yeah. and how Aryan that is. Why was I not picking up any of these Dalek references? Oh, it's I know, I, I'm sure I'm sure I missed some of them as well. Also, they mentioned very early on when the Doctor meets first Miranda, you know, it's the Tempest as well. A lot of this is the Tempest. You know, they mention that first of all, that Miranda is the girl from the Tempest and Ferran, he, you know, is a play on Ferdinand, who's the who's the love interest slash enemy who comes to the islands and he even calls himself they call Ferdy. Himself Ferdy yeah he calls himself Ferdy he's a smart writer isn't he he's just this how do you how do you even start writing something that's this this sort i guess say effortlessly deep because of course it, it will be very high on effort i'm sure um but you know how do you even it's such a perfect sphere of a, it's like a ball bearing it's like where does this even begin it's like it's clearly so dense with references and mm. it so perfectly evokes the era. Yeah. And it is full of constantly evolving, thrilling characters mm. and a ton of incident. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure we deserved him, do you know? <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I, I sort of want, I kept thinking this, which is. I love that you're doing this as Doctor Who, but, but sh- you know why are you why are you doing this here? Why you know you? I mean, I I, I think he did possibly as good with the Infinity Doctors. Mm. I personally think the Gallifrey Chronicles is an extraordinary book uh, Mm. in the way that it celebrates the era and pays off a lot of stuff that people had long forgotten in such Mm. a satisfying way. This is his best, though. Yeah, I I think it is. I really think it is. It's it's, it's his best. And, you know, like you're right, he, think about it, he has probably got one of the best bibliographies of any Doctor Who author. You look down the list and there's not a single dud. There are some that are, you know, there's things like, so the book he wrote, the next Doctor Who book after this was Trading Futures, which is a, a sort of James Bond pastiche and it's breezy, funny thing. Of course he wrote something, a breezy action adventure after this because you need to, right? But, Isn't that the one where he manages to, uh, he has like an entire James Bond pre-title sequence with the doctor who takes down this entire crime syndicate with a bouncy ball i mean what's not to love it's perfect but you know he he, so he yeah i don't think paul cornell had duds ben aronovich had duds mark gatiss we've discussed and asney's fire had duds i don't think paul cornell's had a cold fusion you know we've barely even mentioned that that was one of his books um it's astonishing but i would go further i i think this this is one of if not the best one of the the best Doctor Who books ever written. I don't understand why it's not up there. And people, God, some of the Virgin New Adventures people talk about as if they're all 
you know, penguin classics. And they're not. There are duds in there. But, you know... You know what I think it is, though? I think for two reasons. I think one is because of the Virgin New Adventures or Virgin writers had such an influence on the new series. A lot of them yeah. were cherry-picked for that first season. Yeah. And a lot of what they introduced to Doctor Who, the sort of the angst and that very heavy emotion, that that was all there when the series came back. There's yeah. that. But as well, like a book like this, it is in a lot of ways very gentle, Mm. almost traditional in in what yeah. it's doing you know it is about uh, an uprising and all and and you know flying saucers in space and things like that it's not got that sort of angry reactionary tone to to a lot of you know transit and books like that you know that are really trying to make yeah. a point that we're not actually doing doctor who anymore we're doing proper adult science fiction mm. i think then that might be a bit of bit of why this isn't recognized as much as it is it's also part yeah. of an arc which yeah, kind of it nestles in there rather than standing on its own. Yeah, I think I think a lot of I think you're right. I think a lot of people who, you know, went on to to set you know as you say set set opinions in many in many ways. I think a lot of them had had stopped reading them by this point. You know, certainly the sales were in decline. I think it was this was two thousand one, two thousand two was where they cut the BBC books to one a month rather than two a month. After um, that orphanage overseas, weren't they shoveling them into the furnace? Yep, yep, absolutely. That's God, that breaks your heart, doesn't it? It really um, does. Um, it really does. What we're saying essentially is that all of the people who were important in Doctor Who were younger and getting laid more often when the Virgin New Adventures were coming out. Um, yeah. But I, one thing I, I would like to say about this, though, and on a, this is this is really on a personal note, is since reading this the last time, so I've not read this in about ten years, but I, I'm a, I'm a dad now. And I read this as the dad of, of, of a young daughter. And there was genuinely, it's, it seems stupid to say it, it's a beautiful book about parenthood and fatherhood as well. There were so many bits in this now that I was, you know, in the same way that the first time I read it, I was getting all hung up on the teenage angst and what have you. There were so many bits now where I was going, I, I get that. I understand why the doctor's feeling that. Because there is this, this thing when you're a parent, obviously it's not, you know the love you have for that child the fact that they become the most important thing you know doesn't need saying but even that whole thing of as we said right back at the start he is a character who doesn't know himself and has spent a hundred years not knowing himself and now he's found someone who is like him and who in trying to guide and help as a parent you do it, it can it can help you in some ways understand yourself a bit better because you're forced to be ref- reflective and reflexive in those ways you know Oh, they're being like that because they've got that off me. You know, it's uh, for better or worse, you can see yourself reflected back at you quite a lot. And that's all in this book as well. It's it's you know, when they when they did The Doctor's Daughter on TV, it's not a particularly good episode, but but apart from anything else, it's it's not engaging with its central idea at all. There's nothing actually there about parenthood that it feels to me is recognizable. Whereas at the end of it all, Father Time is a really, really good and sensitive book about the Doctor as a father. And what sort of father would he be? And you think, well, he would be a really good, because that would be his quest, that would be his mission, would be caring for this person. And it's interesting the contrast they have with Debbie, because Debbie carries on through the book, and spoiler alert, Debbie dies. And Debbie dies in quite a brutal and sudden way. She basically trips a trap that was intended for the Doctor. And he he pauses, he's sad. And then he just moves on because he, as you say, he's been oblivious. He, he, I think he understands her on like a lot of important levels, 
but there's no romantic involvement because he can't have that connection but his daughter is the person who has the connection for she is the most important thing uh Stephen Moffat wrote it in Jekyll he said love is a psychopath with a nice name and there's some of that here in the end this is the one thing in a hundred years that the doctor has genuinely cared about and through this novel he helps her grow she leaves goes back to the future in her time machine which she redubs the ship uh like the doctor did in the old days um and at the end of it you know she leaves her her dad behind because that's the ultimate fate of any parent is you know we've all seen toy story three is the ultimate thing is that you get left behind and we are what they grow beyond to quote the last jedi as well to bring it all, all back in um and at the end of it i got when he's watching her go and she goes you know do you want to come with me and he's like no this is this is your thing now i've this is your life your thing to follow oh, I, I got a bit choked up if i'm honest it feels like we've experienced a massively important chapter in his yeah. life in these 100 years and then once he says goodbye to her he's out there in space and he realizes this is where he needs to be mm. and he's just got to wait another i can't remember if it's 13 years or something like that 11 just, 11 years to see Fitz at St. Louis in 2001. Um, and he knows that's all coming. He's got the TARDIS and he's, the, 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 all the bits are in place for that to happen. Yeah, it's got... Do you know, like you said, you, you saw yourself in this book or it taught you things about your life. Mm. There was a lot of bits in this book that I was like, that really reminds me of me. And I don't know what this says about me, but it was those moments where the characters we like, because I I think I'm quite a likable bloke, but I do have... Sorry, sorry dark... yes, you are. Yeah, yeah, you paused uh, me to say... Yes, thank yes. you very much. I was <laughs> well, I do have some dark moments and some thoughts I probably shouldn't have, and Lars Barkin taps into that beautifully. So the bit where Debbie goes to visit Barry when he's mm. comatose in hospital and she says that she's pleased that he is, yeah. but he's still alive and she's happy, but suddenly she's got control over the situation. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I've been there before. Not in that yeah. exact scenario, but <laughs> like that. And there's a bit later on where with Miranda, where she's talking, where she's thinking about the fact that she murdered the fella mm. in part two mm. and she sort of, she managed to rationalize it and compartmentalize it. But the one thing she couldn't rationalize was the fact that she enjoyed it. Mm. And yeah. that, that, that there is that. So, and I've had moments in my life where I'm like, Oh God almighty, that was a terrible thing to do. But geez, I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I just, so I just feel like he's tapping into some very raw emotions that I could see in myself. And I'll tell you what, this does not happen often in Doctor Who books. Oh, no. It's it, it, like even sat here saying this, it feels faintly ridiculous. That we're Can you imagine <laughs> go, oh, do you know what? I, do you know what? I read this Star Wars book the other day and it made me cry about being a dad. <laughs> but that's a testament so, yeah. to how good this is, I think. It's, yeah, it, it, it is wonderful. I, 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 I love it. I wish... I wish it were better recognised and better understood. If you're listening to this and you've not read it or you've not read it recently... <laughs> Spoilers, <back>. everybody. <laughs> Spoilers. First of all, I'm so sorry. Um, There's no Deb surprises left for you now. Deb Debbie's fine. She's living on a farm somewhere. <laughs> Miranda did not kill a soul in this. Uh, no, no, it's all fine. It's all fine. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry. It's fine. It's fine. It maybe doesn't even have a daughter. Like Who knows? 30 years old now, isn't it? They've had a I, chance to read it. There has to be a statute of limitations on this. Oh, do you know the terrifying thing? If you wrote Father Time now, it would be set in the noughties. And it would end in 2012. Oh, oh let's see. Will you stop, please? 
Oh, yeah. I said at the beginning of this, I felt old. Now I feel ancient. <laughs> it reminds me of those kids, you know, that come up to it and say, oh, yeah, do you remember when Doctor Who started back with Rose and Christopher Eccleston? I'm like, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, I, I, yes, I had a nephew who once told me that he'd seen the first Doctor. Like, first oh, no. Doctor. <laughs> he wasn't talking about William Hartnell. <laughs> he was talking about Jodie Whittaker. Oh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, my nephew did, uh, he did used to refer to, yeah, Doctor One was David Tennant because because Doctor Two was Matt Smith. But I get it, if that's your yeah. first Doctor. No, of course it is. But that's, you know, that's the wonderful thing, right? You know, I said way back at the start, the first bit of Doctor Who I saw was the TV movie. And I remember seeing all the adverts for all the tie-in merch in Quiz Kids or whatever it was I was reading, because bless them, they hoped there'd be a child audience. Um, And I remember seeing all of, you know, they had the... Paul McGann and then all of the old doctors behind it and it was just you know that's the stuff that sucks you in that there is this this issue you know this presumably at the time of recording this uh almost all of old doctor who is about to go up on iplayer and you almost. know all almost almost all doctor who. and I Although, am... i've got to say it's almost worth losing it from the iplayer for the operatic spat between Steph Coburn and Ian Levine online, which has been more entertaining than anything I've read in years. <laughs> oh, you sort of hang around a street corner, like dragging on a fan, going, "Yeah, mate, you want to see some cavemen? We must find her daughter. We will make sorry, her, his sister. We'll make her understand." Ten minutes later, oh, she's dead. I was like, "Oh Christ!" Like, <laughs> oh, God, sorry, is... get us back on track. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> at I'll the time what, yeah. with, with with a book like yeah. the best books can be political they can have a, astonishing plots uh that take you in surprising directions they can have great characters in them but for me the best books are the ones that make me feel things and a lot of books i read and it is just a bit of ephemera and i kick through it you know end game that came before this by terence dicks it's fun it's the doctor yeah. as, a, as a spy in the 1940s um but i don't think i felt a single emotion reading it apart from oh no. that's over with at the end yeah throughout so this my heart was a flutter and there's nothing wrong with that you know it's not that the people who did that understood the assignment it's what to be honest we don't we don't pick up doctor who books expecting this that's what we want but the fact that there is this oh it, it just feels it feels so wonderful as you said it didn't need to be done he didn't that's why he didn't need to have put this much consideration and this much thought and this much beauty for once for a better word into into a doctor who book so and i'll be honest with you although i want it to be more red because there's a bit of me that hopes they'd do it on tv if that were the case there's also a little bit of me that quite likes that not many people know about oh, Father Time. It's our. Yeah. <laughs> it's the really good secret one. Here, read that. Go on. <laughs> oh, I won't put it out then. I won't put the episode out. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, to, to sort of bring the Father Time conversation to an end, is there anything we haven't covered here that you would like to bring up? I'm almost willing to bet you've got as many notes as, as me. I've read about 10% of my notes. And that's oh, <laughs> oh, God. I mean, you know, what what, what can I say? You know, Team Rocket are in it. Um, uh, Lance Parkin put the, the Eighth Doctor into an Emmerdale novel. Should mention mm -hmm. that. Uh, what else? Oh, tell you what I mentioned. I'll just finish it. The three set. Did you did you clock the three sections uh, are all named after 1980s cartoon shows of the correct era? 
Oh, I did. Was it what Beautiful. is one battle of the planets? Yeah, it's. Oh God, I've got it down. It is something like it's Battle of the Planets, Masters of the Universe, and Defenders of the Earth. Defenders of the <laughs> Earth, Defenders. Do you remember? I love that. <laughs> Did you notice that Aris Wildtime came to visit in an off-screen adventure <laughs> and left in a half after a day or two, and the Doctor that, caught her in the bath. That is that that wonderful. That line is so cheeky because you know that's there'll be. Because I remember thinking at the time, like, why does he just not bump into someone who explains who he is to him? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, someone tried, and he was just really confused. Yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of that scene in the Tomorrow Windows where Ken Livingston goes up to the Doctor. And goes, yeah, do you remember? You know, you you foiled that invasion of dinosaurs back in the seventies. Did, did I really? How marvelous! I don't remember a thing about it. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's just wonderful. Uh, I've got a note here. Um, a lot of people talk about Blake Seven in relation to the final part, but that's mainly because that's one of the few other shows Doctor Who fans have watched, and it isn't much like Crown Court. <laughs> Imagine this realized on a Blake Seven budget. Oh god! I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. It would be interminable. I mean, I didn't think I could enjoy Father Time more, but with all of these references coming together in some great master plan, you somehow managed to achieve it. Well done. I, 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 I am but a, uh, I am but a messenger of the glory that is Father Time. Okay. Well, let's finish the episode then with a question. Oh no. We'll go to another section. The question to you is, I think I know the answer. It's what I ask everybody. Would you recommend this book to a Doctor Who fan? Yes. Full stop. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Go listen to the last hour and a half. Because it's, it's it's the best Doctor Who story you've never experienced by a country mile. You know, I put out on Twitter that we were doing this and four people now have come to me saying they've spent an extortionate amount of money getting hold not the kindles they've got paper copies and they're tearing for it they're absolutely loving it it's only 200 and something pages but i in my memory it was it was a 500 page epic and even having read it i don't know how he manages to get and it's not small font size like ventress of henrietta street i don't know how he manages to get through so much but no it's um Oh, it's Has your eyesight ever recovered from reading The Adventurous on Henrietta Street? The, uh, I still uh, squint a little bit. Yeah, uh, people people who haven't seen me in real life, I'm wearing glasses. I wasn't before uh, that book <laughs> came out. <laughs> well, look. I'm going to ask you now to, and I, this is my usually my favourite section, but that father time conversation was so fabulous. I'm, I'm contradicting myself. Yeah. What Doctor Who book would you care to recommend to the people at home? Well, I was going to recommend. Uh, uh, you mentioned at the start of being on Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. I was going to recommend uh, the fabulous book Downtime: The Lost Years of Doctor Who by Dylan Reese. Like my Bible, is, that is. Oh, it's wonderful. It's gossipy it's scandalous it's informative and it's well written it's about the unlicensed doctor who uh, not doctor who tie-ins that were produced in the 90s and early noughties and especially quite a lot on bbv uh it's it's glorious it's a wonderful book written by dylan reese who runs the doctor too hot for tv podcast but then i thought he's been on this podcast a ton of times so he can do his own salesman work so i'm not going to recommend that (laughs) forget you heard that instead i'm going to recommend uh the sorcerer's apprentice by christopher bulis 
Now, I never thought anybody would recommend a Christopher Bulis novels. I'm ready to hear this. Off you go. Christopher Bulis wrote a ton of Doctor Who books back in the day. I think he did it. Pretty sure at he least did one every a year. Doctor, every Doctor, <laughs> and he had a book. I I think every year between oh. something like 1994 and 2002, and then disappeared. Sometimes it read like he was writing a book a year, though. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know what you mean. The uh, the the, the quality goes up and down, and I am. It's very difficult to recommend another Doctor Who book after Father Time, and especially The Sorcerer's Apprentice. But uh, it is one of his. It, for me, it's one of his better ones. I read it for the first time last year, and the reason I'm recommending it is, um, it's the original TARDIS team of uh, the first Doctor, Susan, Ian, and Barbara, and they land on a world of magic of dragons and knights and people casting spells you know every science fiction series has to do that story at some point um but it, it's really good it's really good fun and it's a book that i've not really heard talked about much at all but there's i was but i was reading it because i want to read all doctor who books at some point obviously because that's what i'm like and i was really impressed by some bits of it because there's also an there's a subplot that at the same time they're there a battle cruiser of like starship trooper types from earth have turned up because they want to find out why there's magic so they can use it and there's a terrific section of the book that is uh fantasy versus sci-fi so basically the big star wars spaceship is all gunned up they're all you know, ready and lock and load to go and take out some horses. Uh, and then the, the the evil warlock just starts using the magic on the spaceship to basically make all of their sci-fi tech go wrong. Amazing. And I was reading this, I was like, what? why has Doctor Who never... I mean, Russell T. Davis did Wizards versus Aliens, of course, uh, off the back of the Sarah Jane Adventures, but it's, it's really interesting. I'm not going to pretend it's as good as Father Time, but it's an under-considered little book that, that picks up picks up a, a fun little idea and has a lot of fun with it and has quite a that's one of it has quite a fun little twist as to what's going on as well i think the closest we got to that within doctor who was that dialogue scene between the doctor and miss hawthorne wasn't it magic science magic that was it that's all we had <laughs> with that premise man that's ripe for a great story I yeah think, i've never read that one as well no it's really good and um it does it does start off with it being a little bit you know star trek the original series of beam down and oh what costumes have we got in the uh in the wardrobe department that we've not used yet um but but then he goes a lot further with it and has it's just a lot of fun uh and he gets to be a knight again so that's good that's always the older i get you know the more it's just a bit of fun i appreciate a great deal I yeah, I mean, Father Time is a fantastic book that does a lot of emotional stuff really well. But I would rather have just a bit of fun than someone trying to do that and doing it badly. I mean, I think the fun comes in that last section, you know, where he just turns up and goes, "Oh, sorry to hijack your space shuttle." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved all of that. Um, I would like to. Re- this is a kind of a predictable choice because I actually did this on a too hot for TV, but I cannot recommend this book enough because I think it's a near impossible task. It's Jonathan Morris attempting to write a Douglas Adams novel, The Tomorrow Winders, which uh, oh. comes towards the end of the Eighth Doctor run, where everybody said it had gone off the boil, and this book oh, is. No. Busying with ideas, creativity, humour, wonderful characters. Um, I'm not sure how you would describe the novel because it goes off to 
what feels like a hundred different worlds. Mm. Uh, we go under the water. We go to an astral flower, which is in fact an old people's home. Like it's a whirlwind tour of the universe, um, all because an estate agent is attempting to sell planets, and in order to do so, he has to incite a ton of mass genocides in order to make it happen. And this is a comedy book. <laughs> it's very funny. That that's a terrific suggestion. Yeah, I I need to reread that book. I remember at the time. I I don't agree that the the uh, Eighth Doctor books went off the uh, boil. I think the latter half of the range is better than the first half. But reading them in order at the time, there had been quite a run of quite serious, quite dark novels, which are all fantastic in their own rights. Camera Obscura, History One Hundred and One, Time Zero, all that lot. But oh, it it was nice when we had a bit of fun. <laughs> Do you remember we had like there was a whole series of books in alternative universes, wasn't it, where the whole yeah. of the multiverse was falling apart? Yeah. And then they brought that interminable arc to a close and said, right, we've got six or seven books left. Let's just have some fun. And you had like a half life, which was quite mm. a jolly romp mm. uh, back in outer space. Tomorrow, Winders, oh, Sleep of Reason. That was set in a mental asylum. That wasn't full of too many laughs. Deadstone Memorial. I want to say, but they were they were all very good books towards the yeah. end. But the, the Tomorrow Windows stands out particularly because it is so funny, and I will once again highlight the sequence in Tate Modern where the uh, Ken Livingston turns out to be a robot <laughs> with a bomb in his head, and the Doctor just screams, "Everyone, get out! The Mayor of London is going to explode!" Which is so, oh, and that's and, just one of them. And the first appearance of Christopher Eccleston as TV's Doctor. To he looks in the in the tomorrow window yeah oh, and it's he, such a great book yeah uh and it, yeah you, of course they blow up they blow up tate Morton. uh like what's what's russell t davis do when he came back a year later <laughs> exactly up ben blew up downing street <laughs> i wonder if ross t davis and stephen moffat weren't flicking their way through these books you know taking a few <laughs> notes i certainly think stephen moffat might have read a, a laura's miles book or two Oh yeah, uh, I mean definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true. So I'm pretty sure Lawrence Miles. I read something of years ago where he said Stephen Moffat, you know, was a big fan of Alien Bodies. And you think really? Yeah, <laughs> you surprised me. <laughs> oh my, that was glorious. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. No, this was great. And thank, thank you again for uh, getting me to reread this wonderful book. I'm going to attempt to uh, entice you back for a second episode now you did tell me uh, in a personal message that you were reading damaged goods is that right yeah yep. would you be willing because that's another very important book mm, yes uh, of course i'd love to come back and talk about damaged goods with you and we can try and unearth what happened to its author in the year since christopher bulis damaged goods by christopher bulis oh, oh that's a terrifying thought and i believe <laughs> it is another very dark look at the 80s you know if if anything, it makes Father Time look uh, <laughs> <laughs> look like a happy romp. Honestly, that ca- that castle estate in damaged goods makes the Powell estate look like a palace, doesn't it? It's 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 very strange when you've got uh, mother, uh, working class mothers called Tyler self harming in their kitchens. Oh, uh, we'll look, we'll save it for the episode yep. i'm sure it'd be a hell of a listen but um can you very quickly i don't know if you want people following you on the back of this but would you, would you care to tell people where you are online absolutely i'm on uh x.com we've got to call it now haven't we uh at call underscore me underscore kenneth which 
as you can imagine, I came up with uh, when I was not thinking at all about promoting it to other people. Uh, but that's where I am. And uh, yeah, I've uh, recently been on a couple of episodes of Doctor Who 2 Hot for TV, another podcast you should check out, and hopefully going to be back on there fairly soon for the Christmas special. Oh, what are you talking about? Uh, Doctor Who in the Invasion from Space from 1960. Five, the very first original Doctor Who tie-in novel. I know. I did combat. I did I've combat. Heard rock. Of it. Yeah. Well, uh, I did combat rock last time I was on Too Hot for TV. So I think uh, I think the change in tone might actually kill me. <laughs> yeah, that is a staggeringly different tone, I'm sure. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Joe. It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm.